This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. And we've been talking lately about prayer, about the wonderful privilege and the ability to talk to God person to person. And just to remind you of God's phone number, that's what we tell our children. And I think adults can benefit from that illustration as well. In Jeremiah 33, 3, it says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. You know, that goes along with the prayer for truth this morning. God wants to show us things and many of these things are bound up in truth, the truth of his word, the truth of the world around us. And as we seek God in prayer, as we communicate with him, God wants to show us things. God wants to reveal things, ways of looking at things through his eyes, seeing things the way he sees them and understanding the world the way he understands it. And so he says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so that's a wonderful passage. You know, it reminds me of a game show that was on some years ago where you could go on and answer a series of trivia questions and you could win a million dollars. And one of the aspects of that game show was when you got stumped or stuck, you could phone or call a friend. You remember that? You could call a friend. No one ever called me. Okay, just, you know, I could have won a million dollars with you. You could have split it with me. But phone a friend, call a friend. You know, we'll do that in order to win a million dollars. And maybe you have an intelligent friend who'll be able to reveal something to you that you do not know. But I'm gonna say this, our relationship with God and fellowship with him is way worth more than a million dollars. A million dollars is just pocket change. It's not even that, it's nothing compared to the blessing, compared to the satisfaction of walking with God and seeing the world and everything as, as he sees it and understanding the world from his vantage point. And so in this game of life, if you want to use that illustration, you and I have the unique and wonderful ability and resource to call that friend, to phone a friend, to talk to God person to person. So we're going to talk about calling that friend today, if you will. And uh, we forget that God is if we believe on Christ as our Savior, if we know Him, God becomes our friend. Christ is our friend. He said as much in John 15, didn't He? He said to His disciples, I no longer call you servants. Now I will call you friend. And then He went on to illustrate what a friend He was when He said, no greater love than this, than a man lays down his life for his friend. And so Jesus Christ himself has told us that as we unite with him in faith, we become his friends. The Bible says all the way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him to write for righteousness. And Abraham was a friend of God. What a wonderful thing that we forget about sometimes. And it's not that we forget about friends. We run to our friends. We go to our friends when we have need, when we're struggling. We'll pick up the phone. We'll call our buddy. We'll call our girlfriend. We'll seek advice. Or we'll go on Facebook to all of our friends on Facebook. And we'll see what they say. Look to see what they're doing. And oftentimes we get so caught up in the worldly friends that we forget the truest friend that we've ever had. According to statistics, a British publication once offered a prize 
For the best definition of a friend, among the thousands of answers, these were received. Okay, so somebody said, I want to know what you think a friend is. And I wonder this morning, you don't have to answer out loud, of course, but what is a friend to you? What makes a true friend? Who is a friend? Who are your best friends? Here are some of the answers they got. They said, one who multiplies joys, divides griefs, and whose honesty is inviolable. That's somebody's definition of a friend. Here's another one. One who understands our silence. One who understands our silence. You know you got a really good friend when you can go a distance, maybe in a car or something, and not speak, and you don't feel like you have to. Here's another one. A, vo a volume of sympathy bound in cloth. Somebody who understands. Or here's another one. A watch that beats true for all time and never runs down. Those are very poetic and interesting definitions of a friend. Maybe you have a definition. Well, here's the winner. What was the winner? Well, the winner was this. A friend is the one who comes in when the whole world goes out. You know, I think that is a good definition of a friend. One who comes in when the whole world goes out. And listen, the whole world has gone out. The whole world went out back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The whole world went out. The whole world's been out ever since. The whole world is outmoded. The whole world is outdated. The whole world is out of its mind to a great extent apart from God. The whole world has been out. It's never been back in. But you know, this shows what a friend we have in Jesus Christ because when the world went out and because it's out, it could never do anything for us really. Jesus Christ came in. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, entered into the world and again showed us what a friend he was by dying on our behalf. We didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But Jesus demonstrated what a true friend is. When the whole world goes out, he comes in. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 4 with me this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to talk about calling a friend as an aspect of prayer. Now, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful book. The book of Hebrews, we're not quite sure who the, who the human author is. We know the, the uh, divine author, of course, is God. But the human author is still a bit of a mystery. But the recipients were Jewish people who had become believers, and they were struggling with that, that conflict as believers and as Jews, trying to, trying to move from old Judaism to the new covenant and they were struggling with what to let go of and what to hang on to. And if you want to get the theme of Hebrews, it's very simple. The theme of Hebrews is simply that God is better. Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is better than Judaism. Jesus Christ, because he's the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus Christ is better than anything this world which has gone out has to offer. Jesus Christ is a better life. He is a better love. Jesus Christ is better. He's already proven that he's our friend. He's a better friend than any friend that we could ever have. So we're going to look this morning in chapter 4. We're going to see two aspects of Jesus as our friend. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus is a faithful friend. He's a faithful friend. You know, I've been alive for a while. And in my lifetime, people have come and gone. I don't know if you've begun to experience that yet or not. 
People have come and gone. I used to have close buddies and friends in high school, and now they're just acquaintances on Facebook. Even having been at this church as long as I have, people have come and people have gone. There are times you can rely on someone, and quite frankly, there are times when you cannot. There are times when your friends are there for you, and sometimes it seems like your friends are against you. And so oftentimes we get close to somebody, and then unfortunately many times we get hurt by those same people. But the thing about Jesus Christ is he is a faithful friend. Now one of the things the book of Hebrew emphasizes the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as our high priest. We know him as Savior. We know that he came and died on the cross. We also know that he's our coming king. But in between those things, Jesus is up in heaven as our high priest. Jesus is up in heaven standing on our behalf to God. Now, when you think of a priest from the biblical perspective, don't think of Father O'Malley down the street at the Catholic Church. No, no. When the Bible speaks of priesthood, it's speaking in that Old Testament context, and even during Jesus' ministry on this earth, in the Jewish perspective, the priest, his job was to go into the Holy of Holies, the temple of God, meet with God, and offer the sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. His job was to, was to pray on behalf of the people, to advocate for them, to stand up for them. And that's exactly what he did. Well, Jesus became our ultimate high priest because not only did he offer the sacrifice, but he became the sacrifice for our sin. And when he ascended to heaven after his resurrection, he is now in heaven as our high priest advocating on our behalf before the Father. He stands up for us. He stands up for us. Look what it says as we pick it up in chapter uh, 14 of or chapter 4 rather verse 14 it says seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession again the Jews were hanging on to their old life their old religion the Jewish believers were trying to keep things status quo they were nervous about letting go of what was familiar for what was new. And it was tough. Plus, they had no support in their old, from their old friends. Peer pressure is rough. We talk to our teenagers about peer pressure. Oh, peer pressure is terrible. Peer pressure is difficult. And it is. They struggle with it. But let me give you a little secret. I hate to tell you this, any students that are in the audience this morning, but it doesn't change when you grow up. It just looks different because now peer pressure is on social media. If you don't believe the way I do, I'm going to cancel you. If you don't do the things that I do, I'm going to belittle you. And if you disagree with me, I'm going to bully you. So we have peer pressure all of our lives. Whereas before we wanted to be like the jocks and the cheerleaders and the popular kids, now it's we want to be like the Joneses. We want to have the family that I see on Facebook, on Instagram. Peer pressure is big stuff. It doesn't change. And so Jesus Christ, he is our friend. And he's on our side and he never leaves our side. First of all, again, understand that he is our advocate. What does that mean? It means that he stands up for us. He stands up for us. I remember growing up, 
I have a big brother, I have an older brother. He just had a birthday yesterday, turned 64 years old. I'm still in my 50s, where's Richard? I'm waving at you, brother. And I remember my brother and I, you know, just like regular siblings, we fought and we fussed. And my brother used to pick on me and give me a hard time. But when anybody decided to mess with me outside the family, my brother stood up for me. My brother defended me. You know, and then when I went into school and got a little bit older, I had friends that would stand up for me. And I remember one of the most poignant days at West Concord Baptist Church. In my early days as pastor, I was a young man. I was struggling to still understand the nuances of the position in a church that had been established long before I was ever born, long before my parents were ever born. Trying to understand the traditions and the tides of the church. And I'd made my share of mistakes, I still do, but I was a young man trying to figure it out. And I'll never forget one Sunday morning I had preached and I had finished and I was standing up here closing the service out when all of a sudden I saw a bunch of men get up out of their seats and walk forward. I thought, oh, I'm going to be fired. I thought, this is it. I messed up. I'm done. And I'm standing there thinking, Lord, Lord, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden these men started lining up behind me. And I thought, here it comes. They're, they're behind me. It's coming. And the deacon chairman took the microphone and said, I want this church to know we stand behind this pastor. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I never, I never expected anything like that. And it's amazing to know that no matter how hard you struggle, no matter how many mistakes you make, you have a friend that stands up for you. Somebody that defends you. And that's what Jesus does. That's what his role as a high priest is. He stands up in heaven before the Father and stands up for us. Yes, even when we struggle. Yes, even when we make mistakes. Not only does he stand up for us, but he stands by us. The Bible teaches us that once we're saved, if we're genuinely saved, we're always saved. If you know Christ as your personal Savior, you cannot lose your salvation. You're saved and safe. He says in John chapter 10 that we abide in his hand and no one can snatch us out. Isn't that wonderful? Even if we, he says in, in Timothy, even if we believe not, he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, yes, if we sin, if we do things wrong, if we rebel against him, there's discipline. It's not that, oh, I believe and now I can live as I please. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. We are disciplined, but we're never cast out. We are chastened, but we're never chased out. He loves us and stands by us. Yep, there might even come a time when maybe we become such an embarrassment to him, he calls us home. But he stands by us. He stands up for us. That is Jesus, our faithful friend. He is our advocate. Now, here's the question. And notice it says that. Again, seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That is the word of God. That is true. We have him. And what a friend he is. Now notice the next line in this passage, the last line in verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. What is he saying? 
He's saying, let's actually believe that and cling to it and live as though it were true. Because the question, if Jesus is our advocate, is our belief in Him adequate? In other words, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus is our best friend? Do we really believe that He stands up for us and stands by us? How often when we are living, we don't live as though He is who He said He is. It's amazing today, and I'm just going to be blunt with you. Most Christians in the West don't believe the Bible they say they believe in. Most Christians don't truly love to say the Lord the way they say they love Him. Because if that were the case, this building would be full this morning, and this would be a different church, just like every other church in the United States, in the world. We sing the song all about Jesus being our friend and how he keeps his promises. Yet when we struggle with life's issues, when we're faced with money problems or health issues or we are fighting with our family or, or job loss or job changes, oftentimes he's the last person we turn to. When our church struggles, do we gather in prayer? Do we come together and lift up our church before God? Do we really believe that He will do what He said He would do? Do we really believe that He is who He said He is? Oh, we'll run to our buddies. We'll run to our girlfriends. We'll go to Facebook. We'll go to Oprah. We'll go to uh, uh, all these people to get information, to get inside, to get help. But understand this, the world has gone out. It is Jesus who has come in. He is our advocate. But do we believe Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews rather says, hold fast your confession. In other words, what you say you believe, live it out. If Jesus really is our high priest, then he is the first person we should go to. And it is his truth and his word and his guidance that we should filter all advice from anybody else, including your pastor. Jesus is a faithful friend. You talk about calling a friend. And I'm glad, I tell you, I have good friends in my life. I have people that I can count on. I praise the Lord for the pastors who work with me. I praise the Lord for Richard and Aaron. I know I can go to them. They're my, not only my fellow pastors, but they're my friends. For Mike Brooks, for our deacon chairman, Dan Zwick, for other men in this church that I can count on. But you know, as good as they are and as strong a friend as they are, the truest and most faithful friend is Jesus Christ. And that's why prayer is so important. I've got to go to him. I've got to go to him and tell him the truth. I've got to go to him and pour out my heart. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. And yes, Lord, it may, it's my fault most of the time. You know, there are things that you can tell your friend about your life that will cause your friendship to end, but there's nothing you can tell Jesus that will ever cause his friendship to end. But do you and I really believe this? Do you and I really believe that he is our advocate, that he is our high priest? That's what the writer of Hebrews is asking. And that's why he's saying, let us hold fast that confession. Because the Jewish Christians at this time, they were going to fall under persecution from their own friends and families for embracing Christ. 
We're living in that same condition. The country, the world, the culture that we live in rejects biblical truth. I mean, let's just be honest. This culture we're living in today flatly rejects biblical morality and truth. It celebrates perversion. It celebrates uh, what they call diversity. And diversity is not bad depending on how you define it. Truth is not diverse. There's only one truth. But when you stand for truth, oftentimes you're going to get pushed down and put down. Do you really believe Jesus is a faithful friend? Do you go to him? He is our advocate. He stands up for us. He stands by us. He's given us his spirit. He never leaves. He will never cast us out. He goes before his father on our behalf. So is our belief adequate? Here are two questions you can deal with. Why don't we seek him more? Why don't we seek him more? Why don't we go find out in prayer and in his word? You can have a two-way conversation with him. Through prayer, your part. Through the Bible, his part. Find truth. Find help. Find guidance. And why don't we trust him more? Oh, Brother Mike, I love Jesus. Oh, Brother Mike, I'm doing... Bro, oh, no, we really don't most of the time. We don't trust him because we've got it figured out. We talk about how great God is, but in reality, oftentimes we think we're smarter than God. Look at the choices we make. Look at the directions we go. Look at the things we hold on to. What a friend we have in Jesus. He's a faithful friend. He is our advocate, but is our belief in him ad adequate? That's the question. Why don't we seek him more? Why don't we trust him more? Not only is Jesus a faithful friend, but, but even better, Jesus is a sympathetic friend. He's a sympathetic friend. Look what it says in verse 15. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, we think about God and he's so up there and so far away. And, and God, you know, when we think of God, oftentimes people picture him as this old grandfatherly uh, 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 picture. Maybe he looks like Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings. Long gray robe, long gray beard up in heaven, not half paying attention to what's going on. So aloof, so far out there that he can't even understand who and what we are and what we're going through. But that's not the truth. That may be true in other religions, but it's not the truth of Christianity. Christianity's whole story, the whole gospel, the good news is that God came down. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Emmanuel in Hebrew, God with us. Yes, he's transcendent as we talked about in God 101. He's magnificent. He's majestic. He's beyond our ability to understand to some extent. But at the same time, he's close at hand. And that's where Jesus comes in. So we don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But look what it says. But was in all points as we are tempted, yet without sin. In other words, God took on flesh. God came to this world. He just didn't hover around this world in a mist. He didn't just come to this world in some sort of diaphanous, angelic form. He took on flesh and blood, bone and muscle. He was born of a human mother. God was his father. 
He was raised not in a, in a castle or a mansion or a palace. He was, he was raised in the modest home of a Jewish carpenter. He was raised by this man, Joseph. And I'm sure he got out there and he assisted him and learned of carpentry. And understand this, the carpenter, the word carpenter, uh, he did more than just woodwork. We think of carpenters today, they mainly deal with wood. But in, in Hebrew culture and in this culture, the word actually expands on that. Carpenters in Jesus' day did mostly work in stone as well as in wood. And so he had to work with tools and the labor was hard and his flesh would get blisters. He didn't have any easy life. He, didn't, he, he wasn't some rich scion of a grand family. He was the son of a poor carpenter who struggled. And as far as what we are going through or been through, listen, he's been there. He's been there. He understands what we're going through. He, for instance, he suffered emotionally. Are you struggling emotionally right now? Jesus struggled emotionally. The Bible in several places in the gospel see, speaks of Jesus and we see him as weeping. When he learned of Lazarus' death, remember? In John 11, one of the very shortest verses in the, in the English Bible says Jesus wept. It says elsewhere in that passage that he groaned in his spirit. He was grieved. Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and wept over Jerusalem. He was betrayed many times. Imagine the emotional difficulty there. He struggled. He was angered. He dealt with anger as the money changers were spoiling the holiness of the temple and Jesus went in and he literally threw a fit. So whatever emotion that you're dealing with, whatever struggle you're having, he dealt with it. He had it. He dealt with grief. By the time Jesus is an adult, his earthly father Joseph had died. He grieved in the spirit when Lazarus died. Not just for Lazarus, but for the unbelief of the people surrounding him. He grieved for Jerusalem. He suffered emotionally. He suffered materially. Are you struggling right now financially? Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. Jesus was not a homeowner. Jesus did not even barely have a change of clothes. At one time when taxes were due, he performed miracles so when they caught fish, they could take coins out of their mouths to pay the taxes. Jesus wasn't a wealthy man. Jesus wasn't even a middle class man. As far as material possessions are concerned, Jesus, we really don't know what he owned or didn't own or if he owned anything. He suffered materially. He suffered relationally. Mentioned earlier about his father passing. In John chapter 7, Jesus is preaching and teaching and his, his earthly brothers, because Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born, his earthly family literally thought he was nuts. You read John chapter 7. They said he is beside himself. What's wrong with him? They thought he was nuts. 
It wasn't until after His resurrection that they came to know that He was God in the flesh. I'm sure He struggled with that relationally. His disciples doubted Him constantly. The Gospel of Mark really brings this out. They seemed like this was the dullest band of guys that ever walked the face of the earth. They just couldn't get it. And often they doubted Him and struggled with it. And speaking of doubt, what about Thomas who said, I'll only see if I believe? What about Judas who betrayed him? He struggled relationally. The Jews hated him because they felt jealous of him. He suffered and struggled relationally, materially, emotionally. And are you dealing with physical pain? And are you dealing with health issues? Well, I don't have to tell you that Jesus suffered physically, do I? Jesus suffered physically. As we, as we think of this, we oftentimes go to his scourging before he was crucified. And yes, the very act of crucifixion. Do I need to go into the details of that? You know them. They even made a movie about that. The Passion. But even that movie did not portray the truth of Jesus' sufferings for you and I. But not only that, as a human being, he was cold when it was cold. He was hot when he was hot. He shivered. He sweat. He suffered with grief and anxiety and nervousness. The Bible says before he was to, the night before he was to be crucified, it says he was so nervous, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. He was so anxious. He prayed to the Father, Father, if, if this, let it be your will. If this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Quite frankly, he's dealt and suffered with everything that you and I suffer with. You say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, he was God. He even suffered temptation. Oh, yeah, but Brother Mike, he was God. That doesn't mean it didn't bother him. It didn't hurt. Matter of fact, I believe his temptation was even more intense because he never could give into it. The more he resisted, the difficult and more difficult it became. When I think of that, I think of a, a large rock on the surf somewhere in Maine. When the surf pounds at it and pounds on it, it stays stationary. It can't be pushed, it can't be moved, but nonetheless, the pounding continues. So he's a sympathetic friend. He's been there. That's what I love about people who, when I'm struggling, I can talk to somebody who's been there. You know, when I was going through cancer treatments, there are people I would call and say, tell me how this is supposed to go. You've been there. I've been there. That's what you want in somebody. You want somebody, you know, there are times that I cannot give advice. I'd be in the hospital sitting with somebody. I'll be sitting by their bedside and they're struggling and suffering. And I wish I can say, I understand what you're going through. But more often than not, I don't. And if I got anything good out of what I went through last year, I can now sit at the bedside of a cancer patient and say, look, I've been there. I understand what you're feeling. That's what I want. I want a friend who's been there. Jesus has been there. Whatever you're struggling with, he has been there. But not only that, there's an extra blessing as a sympathetic friend. Not only has he been there, but he is here now. He's there for you. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, let us therefore come boldly, confidently, to the throne of grace. Oh, you know what that means? It means that through faith in Jesus Christ, as our Savior, we now have access to God. We have access to the very throne room 
of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not only that, but because Jesus is our high priest standing up for us, standing by us. He's been through what we're going through. We can go confidently, boldly knowing that yes, we will be heard and we will be cared about. It's called the throne of grace. Do you know what that means? It means it's a place that I don't deserve to be. Neither do you. Because of God's love, we're allowed in through Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor. We then now can come to God to the throne of grace because God loves us in spite of ourselves. Jesus stands up for us and we're welcomed in. We can come confidently because we have this faithful friend who sympathizes with us. In other words, not only has he been there, but when we need him, he is there. He is there. Let us come therefore boldly to the throne of grace. What are we going to find? What is he going to offer? Well, look what he says, that we may obtain mercy and find grace. First of all, we can obtain mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. You know, many of our problems, and for some, most of our problems, are self-inflicted. We cause our own problems because of our own stubbornness, our own selfishness our own sinfulness. We make mistakes. We go left when God says go right. We go right when God says go left. We don't believe the God that we say we believe in. We don't live by the scriptures we say we love. And then our life gets broken. It gets beaten. But you know what? God still says, come on. Come on. He said that to the nation of Israel in the midst of their sinfulness and idolatry. In Isaiah chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 1, verse 18, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. Isn't that wonderful? The throne of grace, you can find mercy. Even though you've messed up, you've goofed up, you've fouled up, and you and I deserve hell, we don't get it. We get love. Not only that, but he says you can find grace. And again, grace is that undeserved. That is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so, yes, we come to God in prayer with all of our baggage and all of our junk. And it's a good thing I'm not God because I'd say, get out of here. You're a mess. But God is merciful and God gives us grace and love in spite of the fact that we are unlovely. Why don't we pray more? Why don't we take our problems to Him? Even when we mess up, why don't we go to Him? Why? Notice he says, we can go boldly, confidently to the throne of grace. The fact that we can even go there is an act of grace. That we may obtain mercy even though we deserve for God to say, get out of here, you're a mess. That's what we deserve. He says, come on. Come on. And then we get grace. I love you anyway. I'm with you anyway. And then finally, we get help in time of need. He's there for us. You know, sometimes we have good friends in this world. But as good as our friends can be, they're not perfect. And that's simply because they're, human, they're humans. They're a part of humanity. 
even within a marriage situation. Our spouse, from time to time, is going to let us down. He or or she may not mean to, but they're not going to tell us often what we want to hear. Sometimes they may not understand what we're truly dealing with because maybe we don't tell them the truth because we know if we do, it'll be worse. So they can't help us. Sometimes we're going to let our spouses down. Sometimes we're going to let our best friends down. They're going to let us down. But God never lets us down. And the thing about God is you can tell them things you can't even tell your spouse. You can go to God and be honest and be upfront and seek God's face. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say, listen, if we have no sin in us, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we go to God and confess our sin, you know what the word confess means? It means to agree with. When God says something is sinful, we say, yep, God, I did it and it's sinful and I sinned against you. If we confess our sin, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that word cleanse is a word that literally means to purge and to scourge. Because understand when people clean stuff back in the Bible, they didn't have Dawn dish detergent that just takes grease away by putting it on there. They didn't have something you could just spray on and wipe off. No, no, they had to take their clothes and they had to beat them on rocks to get them clean sometimes. Sometimes God has to do that to us. We come to God, we confess our sin, and God just doesn't say, well, poof, you're forgiven, have a nice day. It's not what it is. It says he will cleanse us, purge us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we come to him, then God's going to deal with us. And it might be rough. And it might be difficult. But if we yield into it, if we roll into it, if we lean into it, God will take care of us. So Jesus is a sympathetic friend. Listen, he's been there. Whatever you're going through right now, no matter what it is you're going through right now, Jesus has been there. He suffered emotionally, physically, materially. He's suffered all kinds of ways. He's been betrayed. He's been anxious. He suffers grief. He's been hurt. He understands. He gets it. He's been there. But not only has he been there, but listen, he's there for you now. He's there to give you mercy and grace and help. There was a man by the name of Joseph Scriven. Joseph Scriven was born in 1819 in Ireland. Joseph Scriven had a great life ahead of him. He began to grow up. He graduated and got his undergraduate degree. He decided then to go to Canada to military school. He had planned a a life in the military. But because of illness, he he had to get out of military school. But while there, he met a young lady and fell in love. And as they were in Canada, they were going to get married But unfortunately, she became ill and died before they could get married. He was brokenhearted. And so he tried to move on in life as best he could. And a little bit down the road, he found another young lady named Eliza. Oh, he fell in love with Eliza. And he was planning a wonderful life with Eliza. But somehow Eliza drowned and died just before they were married. This man was brokenhearted. And he didn't know what to do and didn't know where to go, but he remembered the God of his youth. And he found Christ and he became a Christian. 
And he decided in his life that he was going to sell everything he had. And he took a vow of poverty before God. And he decided to use his life to help others who are handicapped, broken, struggling. And he did. His life was spent doing things and chores and helping out people. Oftentimes he gave away his own possessions for some, for some people who were hungry or didn't have enough to eat or clothes or anything like that. Two businessmen were standing in the street corner one day and saw him walk by with a saw. And one of them said, well, there's a joyful guy, has his saw. Maybe he'll come, I'll pay him and he can cut wood for me. And the other guy says, no, I know them. That's Joseph Scriven. He only cuts wood for those who can't afford it. That's the kind of reputation he had. Well, he became ill. And as he was ill, he sought the face of Jesus and really grew in his faith. And as he was ill, he heard his mother in Ireland had passed away. And he was brokenhearted that he didn't have enough money to go and see her. And so he wrote a little poem that he'd hoped that he could get to her before she died. And you know the poem. It says this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, I want you to notice the second verse as I have it up on the screen here. It says this. Have we trials and temptations? Anybody here that doesn't have those? We want your autograph. Okay. Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. And then he concludes it by saying again, take it to the Lord in prayer. He died in 1886 as he was traveling. He drowned and that's the story of the song. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You have a faithful friend who will never leave you or let you down. He stands up for you. He stands by you. Do you believe that? Will you hold confession? If you really believe that, do you live by that? Do you pray? Do you take advantage of that pray or prayer? Or do you sit in your misery feeling sorry for yourself? And listen, you may think, oh, nobody understands what I'm going through. He's a sympathetic friend. He knows what you're going through. He's been through it. No matter what it is right now at this very moment here at West Concord Baptist Church, no matter what you're going through, he's been there. Even if what you're going through is self-inflicted because of selfishness, pride, and sin. He's, listen, he's been tempted. He's been beaten up. He's been there. But you know what? <laughs> he still loves you. And he wants to hand you mercy. And he wants you to enjoy grace. He says, come before me confidently. Come to my throne of grace, unmerited love. And I will give you mercy. And I will give you help. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And as the hymn refrains, what a friend we have in Jesus. Do you believe that? This is why prayer, person to person, is vital.
And if you and I aren't taking advantage of that wonderful resource, we are at a terrible, terrible loss. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.